And now hear God's word from Matthew chapter 26 as we continue our study in Matthew's gospel. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my, on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We ask you to help us to clear our minds, deliver us from every distracting thought, every worry or concern, and to enter this text to receive from it the account of these most important events in the history of the world, the offering of your son for the sacrifice of the sins of the world. And so, Father, we ask your spirit to guide us and to shape us by this text, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. During the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan in November of 2001, United States forces defeated an al-Qaeda unit, which included an American citizen named John Walker Lynn. He was an American fighting with al-Qaeda against the U.S., Lynn has a strange story. He grew up in California. He converted to Islam at the age of 16. He moved to Yemen when he was 17 years old, lived there for 10 months in order to study Arabic, and then moved to Afghanistan, where he ended up joining the Taliban, and then later joining Al-Qaeda, where he even met Osama bin Laden and listened to a lecture of his one time. So he soon found himself on the opposite side of the battlefield from U.S. soldiers when he was wounded and when he was captured. And then he was interrogated as a terrorist. He was indicted with several charges. He plea bargained. He went to federal prison, and then he was released in 2019. But he was not tried for treason. And there was an entire conversation in the public discourse at the time. I don't know how many of you remember this story and how many of you remember this, but, but there was a conversation around the definition of treason and whether or not it's actually that big of a deal. Why can't an individual follow their conscience and their convictions and choose what side of a conflict to line up with? Isn't treason an antiquated concept? And many in Washington on both sides of the aisle considered Lynn to be just a confused kid, just a, a following religious beliefs that he didn't understand, and he, he got into this mess without seriously considering the broader implication. There seemed to be 
no desire from any quarter to label him a traitor and to try him accordingly. Historically, treason has been considered one of the worst crimes that you can commit and has been met with the harshest penalties. Treason is the crime of betraying your own people. It's the crime of helping an enemy make war against your own home, against your own nation. And so in the old days, traitors were not hanged. Traitors were drawn and quartered. Uh, treason is the only crime explicitly defined in the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution defines treason as the act of levying war against the U.S., adhering to our enemies, or giving our enemies aid and comfort. And that certainly seems to be what Lynn was up to. In the past, treason was not only viewed legally as an extreme crime, but treason was viewed morally as the most vile of sins, perhaps the worst sin of all. You know, in Dante's Inferno, uh, he walks the reader through the various circles of hell. And in Dante's Inferno, the ninth and final circle of hell is home to the most irredeemable of all sinners. Who are they? Traitors. Traitors are in the ninth circle of hell. And those traitors include Lucifer himself, the angel who betrayed God, Brutus and Cassius, who betrayed Caesar. You always get a tip of the cap to the ancient world. We always have to give a tip of the cap to the, the classics. But then also uh, there is Judas. Judas, who betrayed Jesus, is in the ninth circle of hell. And Dante depicts these men as the ultimate betrayers of all humanity. The worst of the worst of the worst. Is that a little extreme? Is that, is that taking it too far? Surely you can think of worse deeds. Surely you can think of worse men, right? No, not historically speaking. Not the way that oh, the West and the way that we viewed treason uh, in the past. Historically speaking, there is nothing worse than breaking covenant with your people. Nothing worse than breaking covenant with your friends and with your countrymen in such a high-handed way that you would falsely lure them into your fellowship and then use the safety and the protections of your covenant with them, use that against them in a violent way, in a, in a destructive way. You see, treason is not just a sin against the covenant. No, treason is using the covenant itself as a weapon against your brother. And that is why it is so vile and so heinous and why it's historically been viewed as the worst possible thing that you can imagine. Today, we're confronted with Matthew 26 and the account here of the unbelievable treason of Judas, that unfathomable, unfathomable act of betrayal of a man whom Jesus had taken into his company and friendship. This man had been given the great privilege of working with Jesus, of learning directly from him, of witnessing so many amazing miracles, and then to be the one who facilitates Jesus' arrest, his abuse, his beating, his crucifixion. Uh, on the one hand, it's difficult to wrap our minds around a sin so, so horrific and, and on the other hand, once we linger there a minute, we start to see glimpses of ourselves in Judas. We're convicted of our own betrayals, how our sin is a form of treason 
against God becomes evident to us and becomes real. So in this text, there are these scenes of those who plot against Jesus. And then in the middle, in the middle of all this conspiracy, we get a breath of fresh air. There's a respite. We, said, we have this account of this extravagant gift and this act of self-sacrifice that a woman gives to Jesus. And, and, and in her, in her giving of herself and her treasure, we see a stark contrast uh, from the behavior of Judas and the conspirators. This is a text in front of us today that is full of extremes as we come to the central events of the gospel. We're coming into the most important events in the gospel and the most important events in the history of the world. These events we'll study from now until Resurrection Sunday, from now until, until Easter. We have arrived at the final days of Jesus's life before the crucifixion. It's always important. I always want you to have the context. I don't want you to forget where we are in the story. We're not just plucking up these little nuggets of scripture. We're not just plucking up these little stories and studying them in isolation from the rest of the text. Where are we in the story? Remember that throughout the majority of Jesus's earthly ministry, he spent his time far from the city of Jerusalem, far from the authorities, far from the powers and the, and the seats of power in Jerusalem. He stayed up in Galilee preaching and healing, even crossing into Gentile territory a time or two, but staying away from Jerusalem because he knew that there would be a major showdown when he got to the city. And that would seriously accelerate the events leading to his arrest and to his death. So he stays away. He stays away until it's time. But when it is time, then he enters the city triumphantly on the day we call Palm Sunday. On that day, he goes right into the temple. He interrupts the business of the temple that day. And then he leaves the city overnight and he stays with friends in Bethany overnight. A couple of days later, he re-enters the city. He enters the temple courtyard. He teaches and uh, he heals while wave after wave of authority figures, members of various sects, uh, critics, debaters, opportunists, they all come to try to trick Jesus into saying something that would incriminate him. They're, they're trying to lure him into doing something that would make them look brilliant and would make Jesus look foolish. But he handles every one of them masterfully, knocks them over one right after another. And then in Matthew 23, he unleashes this series of curses on them for all of their hypocrisies and the way that they're acting just like the generations who have typically, historically persecuted the prophets. Uh, he says, you're just like your fathers who have killed the prophets. That is his curse on that generation. After those things, Jesus and his disciples walk around the temple compound, the, the temple courts, and Jesus says, all this is coming down. Not one stone is going to left, be left upon another. And then they go sit on the Mount of Olives. And the disciples ask, when? When is this happening? And he answers them. He gives them signs of the coming destruction and judgment of the city and the temple. And then he speaks to them in parables about how they're to conduct themselves faithfully as they await the day of the Lord. And that brings us to chapter 26. Now... Matthew writes, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings that he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the Passover and the son of man will be delivered up to be crucified. 
Matthew writes that Jesus had finished all these sayings. And what he means by that, he's referring to that big, large body of teaching that we've been covering the last several weeks, the last many chapters of your Bibles, if you have the words of Jesus in red, the last several chapters are all red ink. He's come to the end. Jesus has come to the end of that big section of teaching, but he's also come to the end of his teaching ministry. After this, we don't get any more parables in Matthew's gospel. We don't get any more long discourses of teaching. We don't get any more debates with the Pharisees. Uh, he's finished talking. He has said what he came to say. And the fact that Jesus stops talking now, that's not a good sign for Israel. His words have fallen on deaf ears of unbelief. His critics have not been listening to him. The only thing that they've been doing as he's been talking is looking for ways to incriminate him or to, or to try to trick him or to catch him. But they haven't been listening in good faith. So after Jesus announced the judgment that's coming, he stops talking. Now, all that's left for him to do is to offer the sacrifice that he came to offer. And when he's resurrected, when he comes out of the grave, he sends his apostles away from Jerusalem out to the nations. He said his peace, now it's time to move on. He is here preparing his people for what is coming. And so he says, after two days is the Passover and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. This is the fourth time in Matthew's gospel that Jesus has told them that he is going to die. He's previously said this in chapter 16, in chapter 17, he said it in chapter 20, and now uh, this is the fourth time. And each of those previous times that he said what's gonna happen, he received these odd responses from the apostles. They're confused, they're dismayed, they're perplexed, they don't understand what he's talking about. One time, Peter rebukes him for what he says, and Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Another time, Jesus says what's about to happen, and strangely, James and John think that this is the opportunity to start jockeying for positions of authority in his kingdom. They don't understand. They have, it's like they're not listening. They're not, they haven't been paying attention. But now, there's no response. Now, uh, and Matthew records, no response from the uh, apostles. And it must seem clearer now. And what's happening is inevitable. They understand what's about to take place. While he's preparing the disciples for what is coming, the religious leadership of Jerusalem is plotting. Uh, verse three, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caiaphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So evidently this is a bad time of year for political assassinations. We save that for other times of the year. All the authorities, all the temple authorities assembled together at the palace of Caiaphas, the high priest, to discuss what they're going to do about this problem of Jesus. I mean, he's just embarrassed them. He has just stood in the temple courtyard and showed them all up. They, are all, they all look like fools. He cannot be allowed to continue his opposition against them, his opposition against the temple. Did you hear what he said about the temple? It's all coming down. It's, 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 that's not going to happen. And then, and then he can't be allowed to continue to stir up opposition against them and against Judaism's institutions. So they plot to take him by trickery and to kill him. There's nothing legal. There's nothing on the up and up about what they're doing here. They want to dispose of him secretly. And you can't do that when the city's full of people for Passover. 
one historian wrote that, that the city normally had a population of about a quarter of a million people, about 250,000 people. But around Passover time, the city would mushroom to about two and a half million people spilling out into all the villages and towns in the, in the countryside. Now, you'll read different historians say, uh, give you different numbers for the population of Jerusalem. And, uh, they have different ways of figuring that out. But it is not disputed that the city grows eight or 10 times as large during festival times. So this is a city bursting at the seams. If they were to try to pull something off and deal with Jesus, they think, while the city is dwell swelling with crowds, crowds of people already in a feverish pitch of revolution, if they try to pull something off, they think there's gonna be riots Lots of people will die. The Romans will come in and shut everything down for good. So these priests and these scribes and these elders are irritated by Jesus, but they don't fear him. They fear the people and they fear Rome. Anywhere Jesus goes at this point, he's surrounded by a swarm of humanity. The conspirators can't get close enough to him to do something secretly because of his popularity. And if they try to arrest him, they don't have any legal basis for doing so. So they needed a covert way to seize him away from prying eyes, be able to get him into the courts, trump up charges against him, pervert the legal process, and get rid of him without drawing any unwanted attention. So they said, we don't have a way to do that right now. We just have to wait. And what we're gonna find out is that Judas gives them what they were looking for. Judas gives them the in, the opportunity to, to arrest Jesus away from the crowds. But while they're plotting to destroy Jesus, Jesus is resting with his friends. And that de demonstrates Jesus is in charge of all of these events. Uh, they aren't. Jesus is in command. The plotters are not in command. Let's pick up in verse six. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. And when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. If, for the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So this is Wednesday night of the week leading up to the crucifixion. He's going to be betrayed and arrested Thursday night. The crucifixion is on Friday. So we're on Wednesday night, and Jesus is enjoying the company of a man named Simon the leper. Now, he must have been, Simon must have been a healed leper, or else he wouldn't have such a loud crowd of company over for dinner. And as they're reclining at supper, a woman comes with a flask of perfume. John tells us who this is. John in his gospel says that this is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Matthew doesn't give us her name, but John does. We know this is, this is Mary. And so she comes in with this costly, fragrant oil, and she pours it on the head of Jesus. And Jesus says she did it for his burial. Now, everyone has heard, at this point, everyone has heard Jesus say that he's come to Jerusalem to die. 
the apostles always struggled with that, but she gets it. She knows that this is imminent. She's she not sure how it's all going to take place, obviously. He might be dealt with violently. If he's handed over the Romans, uh, perhaps there won't be an opportunity to uh, prepare his body for burial in any kind of regular way. She doesn't know what's happening. She knows, however, that he is about to die. And this is her one opportunity, while he is still with her, one opportunity to demonstrate her love for and her devotion to Jesus. And she uses the one precious resource that she has to bless him with. She gives him perhaps the most valuable thing in her house, this fragrant oil this perfume. Now, you might have cologne or you might have perfume and you might not think that's the most expensive thing in your house. It's probably not uh, your greatest treasure. But if you think of a world, uh, the ancient world, uh, in a world of, of stinky things, in a world where if you want to travel, you travel on or with animals, when all the streets are stone and dirt, in a world without refrigeration, in a world without laundry detergent, the way that we have it, in a world without deodorant, things that smell good are a comfort and they're a luxury. Remember that of the gifts that the wise men brought to Jesus, one was gold, the other two were things that smelled good. We had frankincense, we had incense, and we had myrrh, a, a costly perfume. So in, in a world full of, 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 of stench, you want to combat the olfactory assault of rot and death that's always in your nostrils. So you have several examples of this. They burned sweet incense at the altar in the, um, in the tabernacle. Uh, you uh, anoint the head of your guests and you wash their feet. You anoint your head with oil. So here is this costly oil that this woman lavishly pours on the head of Jesus. According to John, it looks like she poured out the whole container. She poured out the whole thing. Have you ever broken a bottle of cologne or a bottle of perfume? Or worse yet, have you ever broken it in the back seat of the car, in the floorboard of the car? You enjoy that for a long time. It goes on and on and on and on. It's like you can never get rid of that of that smell. It lingers and it lingers. And so would the scent of this perfume. It would have filled the house it's so much that you could probably smell it in the street. You know, you might have to open a window. This sticky, sweet substance that, that she pours on his head would have stayed in his hair and on his beard and on his robe all that night, all throughout the next day, through the Last Supper, through his arrest and his trial and, and his beating and his crucifixion. He would have had that ever-present reminder of the sweet-smelling sacrifice of Mary's worship all the way through his ordeal. She pours it all out because she follows Jesus' example. That's how you express your love. How do we know that? Well, because that's what Jesus does. This is how he gives. This is the Jesus who makes a 1,000 bottles of wine at the wedding of Cana. This is the Jesus who makes so much food to feed the multitudes that they have to take up baskets of the leftovers. There's enough leftovers to feed another army. This is the Jesus who holds nothing in reserve, who loves so fully, so completely, that he gives his own body for the deliverance of his people. He is the Jesus who has demonstrated that this is how you give, and he is the one who's on the receiving end of this gift. 
She's imitating her Savior's excess. She's imitating her Savior's liberality. But not everybody's so impressed. Not everybody likes this. Now, again, when John tells this story in his gospel, he points out that it's Judas who first speaks up. It's Judas who leads the complaint. But here, Matthew lets us know that all of the disciples agreed with Judas. They all together say, what's going on here? Why this waste? We could have sold that oil and given it to the poor. We could have given the money to the poor. But we know that this is false piety. This is a disgusting display of virtue signaling and, and, and disingenuous malarkey. That's not, that's not what is going on here. That, there is time to care for the poor, and it's right to be generous with your resources. There is also a time to worship the Lord Jesus, and it's good and right to be generous with your resources in worship as well. And what makes this protest ring so hollow is that we know what Judas is up to. We know what he's about to do. And if this costly oil was sold and that money was taken and put into the treasury, into the common bag, it would have never ended up with the poor. And then just as if to underscore this, Matthew cuts right to Judas and his plots. Verse 14. Then one of the 12, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. So from that time, he sought opportunity to betray him. What is he thinking? What has gotten into his head and into his heart? How could anyone commit treason against your friend, your brother, your king, your savior, the very son of God. How, how can you do this? And, and this is such an extreme example of treachery. It's such that the name Judas is now synonymous with traitor. If you call somebody a Judas, everybody knows what you're talking about. But it wasn't always that way. Judas was not a, a, a negative name or a negative, uh, had ne negative connotations. Judas used to be a popular name. In fact, it was a name with some pretty famous historical figures uh, who were named Judas. Judas Maccabeus was a hero two centuries before Jesus. He had liberated Judea from the Syrians. A couple of decades before this, Judas the Galilean uh, was, a, was a famous resistance leader who led a tax revolt against Rome. Did Judas Iscariot see himself as another, as another great figure in Israel's history? Maybe he's bound for fame. Maybe he could be the third great Judas in recent history. Maybe he's upset. If we, if we just try to look at this with some modicum of charity, trying to understand his heart and his mind, maybe he's upset that Jesus has just gained all of this momentum in the city. I mean, he really dealt the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees an embarrassing blow in the temple courtyard. I mean, he spanked them in front of everybody. The people are going to be on Jesus' side now. And Jesus is still talking about dying in the midst of all this. I mean, Jesus should be talking about taking over Jerusalem and becoming king. And so perhaps Judas is plotting a confrontation. Maybe he's playing both sides. Maybe, maybe we just accelerate this conflict and we could instigate something uh, with the elders here, with the chief priests, because Judas has seen Jesus' power. Judas has seen him uh, raise the dead. He's seen him uh, uh, speak to the winds and the waves and calm the storm. He knows Jesus' power. So maybe, just maybe, he can provoke Jesus into obliterating his enemies and then 
set up his regime, and then he can thank me later for setting this up. Maybe, maybe, maybe Judas is just tired. Maybe he just knows that this is all winding down. It was fun while it lasted, but this is all about to go way south. This is about to go bad. And at least I can make a little bit of money out of it. Not much, just whatever, whatever. You know, he, he goes to them and says, what are you willing to give me? And they start counting out 30 pieces. And so he doesn't negotiate. He doesn't say, ah, oh, no, 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 you're gonna have to give me more than that. You're gonna, you're gonna have to give me a title. You're gonna have to give me some kind of a, a, a lands or something. No, they just, start, they just start giving him pocket change. And, and he says, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, I'll take it. Uh, we, we don't know for sure. We can't know for sure what's going on in his head and his heart. We do know that the 30 pieces of silver is the price of the life of a slave in the law. In Exodus 21, if your ox gores somebody else's slave so that slave dies, you owe restitution of 30 shekels of silver. And that's exactly how much Jesus' life is valued out here. The price of a dead slave. That's what Judas is willing to give him up for. Before Judas comes to these priests, they don't really have a plan. They're fumbling around. Judas gives them what they're looking for. He gives them a plan. He gives them everything they need. He can use his friendship with Jesus to deliver him up. You see, that's, he's using the covenant. He's using his friendship. He's using his brotherhood with Jesus as a weapon to deliver him up. And the pieces are coming together for the sacrifice that Jesus will offer. One more little section we're gonna read, the uh, Last Supper. Listen closely, verse 17. Now on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying to him, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. When evening had come, he sat down with the 12. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes, just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, you have said it. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. When they'd sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this is now Thursday night. This is Thursday night as he prepares to celebrate the Passover with his disciples, Jesus says, my time is at hand. How many times has Jesus says, my hour has not yet come? How many times in the gospels has he said, it's not my time, I'm not ready. But now it is time. Now he's on a mission, he's on a schedule. Now it's time to finish up, wrap up all the things he was sent to do. And he begins by transforming the old covenant ritual of Passover, the old covenant meal of Passover into the sacrament of the new covenant. And all this takes place in this atmosphere that's thick with the tension of betrayal. When they sit down at supper, Jesus begins with a little icebreaker, you know, a little conversation starter. Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they all begin to doubt themselves and they all start to question. They wonder, could it be me? Is it, is it I? 
Am I the one who betrays you? And they were all exceedingly sorrowful because they know their own hearts and they know their own frustrations with Jesus and they know the fears that have boiled up in their chest every time Jesus boldly declares the kingdom. And they all at various times must have been tempted to abandon Jesus and go back home and leave the mission or try to manipulate Jesus. We see evidence of this, that they try to manipulate Jesus into being more the kind of Messiah that they expect him to be. So is it me? Could it be me? Am I the one? It may be. Maybe I'm going to do it because it's in my heart. I know myself and I know it, it might be me. Well, Jesus reveals that it was Judas who was betraying him the one who dipped his hand with Jesus in the dish, the one who sat there and broke bread with him at the table, acting like everything is normal while he had those 30 shekels of silver in his pocket. He had the blood money right there. He had just collected, acting like everything is normal. And Jesus knows this. He knows all of this. He knows everything, again, because he's in command. Jesus is not a passive passenger kind of following these cruel twists of fate, not at all. And notice even here, he could have incapacitated Judas. He could have paralyzed him. He could have blinded him. He could have blown him to smithereens. He could do any number of things to prevent Judas from leaving there and orchestrating Jesus's arrest. But Jesus doesn't stop him. No, he lets him go. Jesus uh, lets him go, but Judas doesn't leave there without looking Jesus in the eye and fully committing to the thing that he had already determined in his heart to do. Here's his chance. Here's an opportunity to walk it back. Here's a chance to repent and repudiate his sin. He could fall to his knees right here and say, Lord, I don't know what I was thinking. How how foolish of me. Lord, I've just lost my mind. I'm insane with sin, but forgive me. He could have done that, but he doesn't. He looks Jesus in the eye and he walks out brazenly proceeding with his plan. Well, after that exchange, Jesus takes bread and he takes wine and he gives it to his disciples. He says, this is my body, this is my blood. He institutes that core Christian meal, that core Christian ritual that's been repeated throughout the world every Lord's Day since that time. Every Sunday morning in Christian worship, we're brought back to this night, this night that we're studying about, remembering again what was said that night, what was done that night, remembering the extravagant gift that Jesus is giving and delivering himself up. As he gives them bread and wine, he's showing, I am giving myself to you, I am giving myself for you, because it's gonna look like I'm being delivered up to the chief priest. It's gonna look like I'm being delivered up to Pilate, to Herod, to, to the Romans but I'm I'm being given to you. I'm giving myself to you. His body and his blood are given to us and for us in such a way that his gift of himself is our nourishment. His gift is our life. And so as we keep this feast that he institutes here, as we keep this feast week by week, we are sharing in the benefits of his sacrifice. We're receiving these treasures of life And obedience, his obedience before the Father is ours to share in. And so he says, this is my body, this is my blood, this is my life, this is my death. It's all for you. Nothing is held back. Nothing is reserved. You know, in the peace offering, in the the Old Covenant, in the peace offering, the animal would be uh, put on the altar, but it was also shared. The animal was eaten by the priest and by the worshipers and by the family around the offering and Jesus is putting, he's spreading his body as a peace offering. Yes, I'm being offered up, but yes, you eat. 
You eat and you drink in my presence. You are fed off of my sacrifice. So as he gives the bread and the cup to his disciples, he signifies that his body is being offered and being broken on the cross for his people. This is for you. This is for me. His blood is shed for us to bring us into fellowship with the Father. And as surely, as surely as we receive the bread and the cup, as surely as we eat and as surely as we drink, so are we assured that he is feeding us and nourishing us with his crucified body and with his shed blood. He is ours. His life is ours and his sacrifice is for us. That's what's happening in this, in this transaction here is that he is giving himself to us. And as we eat in faith, we embrace with believing hearts that all of his work has been applied to us and that we continue in it, that we have forgiveness of sins, that we have eternal life. And that as we continue this feast, we are more and more conformed to his image. We are more and more united to him and in fellowship with him. We're governed by his spirit. When he gives them bread and wine, he gives them himself. He's giving, him, he's giving them his fellowship, his presence. And, and the people who continue in this meal are the people who continue in his fellowship and, and in union with him. But we don't forget, we can't forget that all of this happens not just on any random night. Jesus could have stopped on any night and done this. But, but this happens on the night that he was betrayed. This happens on the night that Jesus is being broken open and poured out, just like the loaf of bread is broken, just like the wine is poured out, just like that alabaster jar of oil that Mary brings, just as that's broken open and poured out. He is giving himself completely and fully in the middle of this conflicted, confusing, turbulent series of events. As unthinkable as it is, as he gives himself this unspeakable gift, is being actively, violently rejected. It's being rejected by the chief priests and the elders of the people he came to save. It's being rejected by the people who in less than 24 hours are gonna be crying out, crucify him. He's rejected by one of his closest friends and near companions. And even though these other 11 apostles are gonna go out with Jesus singing a hymn, they're all going to betray and deny and abandon Jesus in other ways. They all, they all have enough doubt in their heart about their own loyalty that they think that they might have the potential to be a traitor. And over the next few days, all of their hearts are going to be bared. Everything is going to be exposed. So, so to try to explain it, to try to understand the motivations of these various actors, these, these people in this account, it really, it, it comes down to this, that, that none of this rejection that Jesus is receiving, none of the rejection makes sense. Because sin and unbelief is absurd. You can't explain it. There's no logic to it. Whatever was going on in Judas's head and in his heart, it can be summarized like this, though. He thought he knew better than Jesus. He thought he had a better plan. He thought he had a better agenda. Of course, he didn't. He didn't have a better plan. And his story ends tragically. But as we reflect on this, it's important that we realize that all sin is treason. R.C. Sproul famously, and I think accurately said, sin is cosmic treason. I think he's right uh, about that. That, that. that all sin is treacherous. 
All sin is the sin of Judas. All, all who reject the Savior belong with the traitors in the ninth circle of hell. Because all of mankind, we're, 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 we're in covenant with our creator in, in, in that we all have a duty to obey him. We all have a responsibility to obey him. We benefit from his mercies and his providence every single day. There's not one good thing that you have ever received, not one delight that you have ever experienced that is not a gift from God. Every single thing you have is a gift from God. And in the face of that, just like Judas, we look him in the eye and we twist the thing that he gave us. We look him in the eye and we misuse the blessing that he gave us. We look him in the eye and say, I know a better way. I don't wanna do what you say, I know a better way. I don't, actually, I've got a better plan. I hate your plan, God. Uh, I hate your law. I hate your son. I hate his sacrifice because I know better. Every single sin is that level of treachery. Every single sin is that degree of betrayal. Sin, we, we, we tend to think, and so we have this casual idea of what sin is. We think it's a whoops. We think, it, we think sin is an uh-oh. We think it's, oh, oh no, well, that happened. No, sin is an open act of violence against God's holiness and righteousness. Sin is rebellion. Sin is treason. And it racks up a debt that's unpayable by us, a debt that dooms us to an eternity of separation from God and an eternity of righteous judgment. Accept that. The same Jesus gave himself to cancel that debt. And because this same Jesus poured himself out, we have life. So every day, and we've got two examples here in this text, every day you have an opportunity to be a Judas or to be a, to be a Mary. There's two different ways right here. To be a Judas that absorbs and consumes and looks the Savior in the eye and say, I don't care. I don't care what you want. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you demand. I'm going to take what you've given me. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing because I know better. That's the way of Judas. And there's the way of Mary that says, whatever I have and everything that I am and whatever I've been given, I freely and openly give it back. And I pour it out to you, Lord, in worship, in obedience, in sacrifice, in service. It's two ways. God's Spirit guide us and strengthen us to imitate the Lord Jesus more and more because Mary's just imitating him, right? To imitate the Lord Jesus more and more and to repudiate the treason, the treachery, the betrayal of Judas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask you to strengthen us by your spirit to that end. Lord, uh, convict us of our sin. Lord, uh, show us in all the ways that we have uh, trampled on your goodness to us and we have betrayed you. Father, we pray that you would indeed conform us more and more to the image of your son. And as we eat and drink together in a few minutes to refresh our union with him. In Jesus' name, amen.